coming up. Property damage, default, notices, complaints, judgments, and sheriffs. Oh, my. We're diving into the greatest fear of many investors, the dreaded commercial tenant eviction. But first, a tasty musical treat from one of Jacksonville's very own Firewater Tent Revival. Hello, Jacksonvillians. I am your host, Ian Brown, and this is the Jacksonville Commercial Real Estate Show. We bring you dynamic local entrepreneurs, deal makers, and thought leaders. We're ready to dive in, unpack the local commercial real estate market so you can invest with greater confidence and accelerate your own success. This show is lovingly produced by yours truly and Yield Coach Capital. To stay up to date and never miss an opportunity, go to investwiththecoach.com, answer a couple of questions, and join the team. All right. I am very excited. Today, I am joined by Miss Megan Edwards, attorney and co-founder of Edwards and Edwards PA. Megan, welcome to the Jacksonville Commercial Real Estate Show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. I'm finally that excited I, I got picked. You have been picked. You've been selected. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I have a burning question for you. Do mm-hmm. I need to hire an attorney or can I just go out there and do my own commercial eviction? Um, well, this, this might be the you know the caveat of, of the whole thing today. I am an attorney, so I am biased. So yes, I will always <laughs> say you, you need an attorney. Um, but I would say more so the short answer would be yes, um, because typically speaking, uh, commercial evictions, the landlord is an entity um, and an entity in Florida is required to be represented by counsel um, in an action. If you try to file, uh, you know, try to file a commercial eviction action, you don't have an attorney, it's you're going to run right into a wall and, and the judge is going to kick you out. Um so there's number one, that rule, but then number two, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you might actually, you know, you might be successful on your own in getting this tenant out, um, but was it in the fastest way? Did it preserve certain rights in doing so? Um, and that all, that all matters, right? Because the time is money. So um, a, a competent attorney is going to be able to move the case along more quickly um, and more efficiently than you would on your own. So you have another reason to tell your clients to make sure that they incorporate and form an entity when they're going to own rental properties. <laughs> Bingo. Because when they go to evict, they're, they're going to have to call you once more. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. You know, uh, a little a little disclaimer. Um, Megan and I go, I'd say way back, you know, I'll put air quotes. I Get rid of the air quotes. No, we go way back. And, yeah. um, and we were both on an attorney board, uh, Jacksonville Real Estate Council. And I believe, Megan, you are currently the president, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And Megan is a, she's great in real estate. They do transactional and litigation, but um, she, well, she's actually doing transactional for me right now on a few files. However, when I had my uh, 40, give or take housing authority, low income multifamily properties, Mm -hmm. I ended up with, I believe 14 evictions on my hands from properties Mm -hmm. that I purchased. I inherited some, some problem children and uh, Megan helped helped get me through 14 evictions and I think like a little over a year. So thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time. Never, never a boring day, right? Oh, never a boring day. And I remember, and and this is going to turn into a question, but like I would have a tenant, you know, usually through my management, um, they'd be like, Oh, I want to make like, uh, I want to give you like $50 now or a partial payment on Tuesday or really stringing along. And what I, what I realized is a lot of times that's just a strategy to keep you from actually filing on them, you know, start taking these partial payments and delay because they kind of know once the clock is running, 
a residential tenant is going to be out in 30 days. We can talk about, you know, the commercial difference, but do you advise landlords or management companies to take partial payments? And, you know, if so, why? Uh, I think it's going to depend on each situation. So for example, um, prior to, and this is both for residential as well, um, prior to filing suit, um, filing an eviction, there nine times out of 10, there's going to be some condition precedent, right? Something that you have to do prior to filing. And one of those is a notice, right? Majority of the time, it's going to, it's going to require some type of notice, right? A notice of default. So in this scenario where we're, we would need to move against a non-paying tenant, you are required prior to filing to give that three-day notice, or if your lease requires more notice, then, then more notice. One of the things, once giving that notice, right, you're required to give this tenant the, the opportunity to cure the default. That's essentially what it is. Think about it, you know, in foreclosure, you get a notice of default, right? It's all being given the opportunity to cure. In serving this three-day notice, if the tenant attempts to make full payment, you must accept it, right? If they're attempting to give partial payment, then you may accept it. And determining whether you should accept it or not is going to depend on how far behind they are, how much money they owe, how quickly you want to get the property back. So, for example, if somebody owes, you know, $30,000 and they come in and they say, well, I have 15. Well, you want your 30, but maybe this is going to be the only time that you're actually going to see money in hand. So maybe it's worthy of taking that $15,000 and immediately turning around and giving another three-day notice for the balance, right? So that way it continues to keep the pressure on this tenant you able are able to get this money. So just because you're accepting the money doesn't mean a partial balance, doesn't mean you still can't move forward. It just means you need to serve another notice. So I, I think sometimes it just depends if you're up against the deadline and we're closing in you know, 60 days and then maybe accepting money is not an option. But if you have some time, yeah, may, maybe do that money grab, try to see what money you can recover, do another notice and then proceed that way. And so if I take the money as a landlord, in your example, they owe me 30, I take 15. By taking 15, do I go to the start of the flow chart or can I kind of, do I pick up where I left off or how, how, how does it affect? You'll, you'll start over essentially, right? And this is all, all these notices are happening prior to you filing suit, right? And that's the idea, idea is if you can recover the money prior, prior to filing suit, not have to do that, great. Typically, promises to pay that are not accompanied by money um, typically are not going to right come to fruition. So that's fine if you want to have some sort of while you're working it out, some money showing up, whatever the case may be. But you want to continue to make sure that you are keeping that pressure on and, and pushing the process forward. Um, so, yes, yeah, so if you did accept a partial payment, right, again, we still are pre-suit. This isn't you know, we haven't filed yet. Um, so by the top of the the flow chart, you're not you're not very far down it, right? You all you've done is hit that first step, which is give the three day notice. You accept partial, turn around that same day, give another three day, and then if you get more money out of it, great. Um, if not, then then you're teed up. To now, file. is there a difference? Like, let's say I have a tenant who is paying rent, but they're breaking another rule. So like you know a default that's not monetary, mm -hmm. is it still treated with the same notices and schedules or is it a, like a different flow chart? Um, the, the procedure uh, overall is pretty similar. 
Um, what's going to be different is, well, let's say first what's going to be the same, right? Um, both are going to require some sort of pre-suit notice, um, an opportunity to cure, depending on what type of non-compliance it is. And it's a longer period to cure it. It's not three days or five days, or it tends to be, it's going to be a minimum of 15 days um, that the tenant's going to have the opportunity to cure. And just like you do in a residential space, like you do in a commercial space, um, it depends on what the non-compliance is. If it's a non-compliance of the nature that the tenant should be given an opportunity to cure the default, right? Um, you have a, uh, you failed to obtain insurance, right? The, the required amount of insurance. Um, you failed to pay the CAM fees. Oh, that's monetary, um, but not in the rent monetary sense. Um, you fail to do what, whatever these other things are, right? But they're minor, right? Think in a residential sense. Uh, you have a dog on the property and you're not supposed to, right? You moved equipment onto the property and you weren't supposed to. They're required to give a 15-day demand that says you have 15 days to fix X, Y, and Z because pursuant to this lease or the statute, you are not allowed to do that, right? And then you have to give them the 15 days to cure. Um, if another violation is repeated that's similar, then that in the same within 12 months, then typically that could result in a, in a termination, right? It's to stop the on and off and on and off and the volley of non-compliances, right? We're gonna we're gonna notice you once. If we have to do this exercise again in the next 12 months, we could straight terminate. And another way you can just straight terminate, um, if it's for we've had people where they um tenants stole from the landlord. Okay, we're not going to give you a, a notice to don't steal from your landlord again, right? We're just going to straight terminate. We're going to say, right, things like lying, stealing, cheating, and violence, right? We say are kind of zero tolerance. So in those situations, we give a notice. Here's your notice. This is what you did. This is in violation, and you're required to vacate in 15 days. Right. So let's say mm -hmm. I, I own a strip center. And I, I sign a lease with uh, an autism clinic and they're in there and they're seeing kids and patients. And then a year later I drive by and it's a vape shop and nobody told me. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh my God, there's a vape shop. How'd this happen? And I call them and it turns out maybe they, without talking to me, like illegally sublet the property. I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not in their lease that they can sublet or they didn't ask me. Would that be something where it's like, maybe that 15 day notice to cure or might that be a termination or would the lease just determine? Well, you know, that's going to depend on the landlord, right? Um, does the, even if the agreement has and contains a clause that expressly prohibits subletting or assignment, or you can do it only with the consent of the landlord. Um, you know, is your original tenant, are they out of business? You know, um, if they are, then do we want to spin our wheels trying to get this vape shop out? Or do we want to maybe see if this tenant actually is a is a good tenant? Maybe they can actually go through the underwriting and actually qualify for the unit. Um, doesn't mean that, that the original tenant isn't without liability or isn't going to have some something that they owe to the landlord. But in that situation, the landlord could go, well, maybe I'm going to underwrite them. Let's see. I didn't know about this. So in those situations, we give a 15 day demand that says you are required. This is in violation. This is, we can terminate you just so you know. However, we are willing to consider you as a tenant if you undergo our underwriting process. And you have to do that. You got 15 days to do that and get approved. If not, then you'll need to vacate. Conversely, the landlord could just simply 
straight terminate these tenants, right? And you would sue both for possession, right? Possession of the property. And then you'd also be looking for some probably monetary damages, right? So you're going to be suing both your original tenant plus this subtenant. And it's worthy of noting that unless the contract says it or specifically says it, um, the assignment does not release the, uh, the underlying requirement or the underlying obligations. So if you have a tenant that assigns this and sublets it, now you just have two tenants that are on the hook. It does not release your original tenant, which right. is really, so, really important. So like in my hypothetical, if it was, you know, like that autism clinic, then uh, without consent sublets to the vape shop, you would go ahead and name both of them in your, in your notices and suits. Yes. Yeah. yes. Okay. Now, um, you know, on the, I feel like a lot of landlords wrestle with like, when do I take like firm, swift action? Um, I can think of a couple right off the top of my head. And I've been that landlord before. And, um, you know, I think it's tempting to to approach some of this with, dare I say, like a self-help mentality. Mm-hmm. Is there, um, well, first of all, if you wouldn't mind, kind of give some examples of self-help and and explain if I am or if I am not allowed to do that as a landlord. Sure. I'll say number one in residential, no. Okay. So when you're dealing with all the multifamily, right, with your multifamily units, and you want to make sure that your pro- any of your on-site property managers, your property management company knows, absolutely do not engage in self-help. Um, self-help includes changing the locks, um, turning the power off, um, anything that attempts to circumvent the landlord-tenant statute, right? The landlord-tenant statute is prescribing the remedies to us and how we need to handle these things. Any attempt to go around those, particularly, and you know, in the resident in these, and it's hard, you know, we say residential, but it's residential landlord tenant applies, but it's in a commercial space, right? In, in our multifamilies, for example. Um, and because in doing so, you open the statute's very clear, you open yourself up as a landlord to three times the monthly rental amount, it's just your damages, right? It's just going to be your damages to the tenant. Um, on top of that, that's one that an attorney is going to pick up real quick because there's going to be attorney's fees and costs attached to that, right? It's very, it's a very clear one. Um, so if, again, if there's something happening on the premises that you don't want happening or is in violation of the statute or, le- or, or the lease, a notice is the mechanism to cure that and then ultimately filing for eviction, not disconnecting the utilities, not preventing access to certain places. Um, I've had recently, um, just recently, one that you and I were talking about a little bit, in which we had um, a, a shared, um, we've had shared air conditioning units, we've had shared um, utility meters, right, where maybe the entire place is rented out, but for one or two offices, right, these big warehouses. And we had a, a tenant go, and this was all discussed ahead of the lease, it was contemplated in the lease, there was reductions in rent to account for this shared metering and these shared air conditioning units. And we had a tenant completely disconnect both, right? Um, and even, you know, to his own detriment um, or completely re- refused to allow the landlord entry, right? Or vendor entry to go and actually get these things working again. You have a landlord that shut or a, a landlord that was shut down for a week by, by their tenant. Fortunately, we were able to move on an emergency basis, get an emergency injunction against the tenant to say you you need to get this working again and don't do it again, right? Or there's going to be some real big penalties. 
So the self-help is, you know, and I get it in commercial a lot where people say, I heard you can just change the locks. And I was like, you could just change the locks. What is the point of this entire <laughs> statute? Why did they even give us a procedure if that's what we're able to do? If the property appears abandoned, right, then there's certain circumstances. But by and large, it's not they didn't pay rent. Um, they didn't give me a copy of their insurance. I'm just going to change the locks. It's, yep. it's going to be a hard no-go. I have had people ask me that before. They're like, I went by the property. I don't think anybody's there. They're not answering my calls. They're not answering my texts. They're not answering my email. Can I just go pop a lock and change this thing? <laughs> and I think that's Which, a pretty common question, right? And it is. And sometimes it's reasonable to do, right? There's times where that does make sense to do. But if you're going to do those where I say, right, it's where particularly with investors and the people that watch the show, it's, it's risk, right? What level of risk are you comfortable with? right? It's, it looks like rent's unpaid, the utilities are turned off. There's really no equipment in there right now. Um, I haven't heard from anybody, right? You're in the middle of an eviction. You might go, I don't want to wait for this anymore. I just want to change locks, re you know, retake possession and off I go. Now that's typically where the self-help comes in, right? Somebody changes the locks thinking they're gone and then they show back up and they go, what are you doing? Right. So it's not as something as blatant. You didn't pay your rent. I'm changing your locks. No, it's something much more passive. It, it's it, it occurs in those situations. Um, so in those situations, I say, well, look, it looks you're probably good, but this is your decision. There's no bright line rule here. Take totality of the circumstances and they go, well, I feel comfortable with 90 percent. Sure. So I'm doing it. Say, OK. And if somebody's not comfortable with that, then I would say, hey, we got another three weeks to a month left on this eviction or wherever we are. Just let it ride out because once it goes and final judgment centered and there's a writ issued, then you avoid any potential really liability for the self-help. And it also allows you to deal with some of the personal property and the equipment um, that's in there as well. Now, Meg, with my 14 give or take evictions, they were they were residential, but they were in apartment communities. And um, most of them were, were housing authority tenants on a voucher. Um, and what had happened is the the voucher amount had changed. So like they say, they came to me with a voucher for $800 for a two bedroom. And then circumstances changed in their lives. Maybe it was an employment thing or a benefit they started to receive. And then their voucher dropped. And maybe it went from 800 during the tenancy and it dropped down to, let's say like only a hundred or 200. And you, you mm -hmm. probably, you probably know where I'm going. Then all of a sudden I'm not getting that that balance, that shortfall, that $600 of the 800. And, um, and so we ended up doing, you know, we worked with you in your office and getting these notices and, you know, filing and then kind of waiting a week. So the five business days, and then, and then we would, we would be doing all of our paperwork and every now and then we would get an answer, but I would imagine commercially, you probably see, I would think answers are the norm commercially. Am I wrong about that? Do you, do you typically have commercial tenants, you know, want their day in court? Um, if we're saying commercial tenant from um, kind of business to business. Yeah. So like a non-residential tenant, because of course mm -hmm. you could have a single family or a multifamily, but let's kind of put them to the side just for a second and, and go okay. back to more of like that strip center example or like an industrial park or, you know, something sure. like that. Yeah. Um. So yes. Um, yes. It's a, yes. We typically are getting answers more. Um, now we've had scenarios where 
Uh, maybe you've seen like warehouses, right, with multiple front garages, and there's probably maybe about 30 or 40 of those, and they're just rented out individually. Um, the, the rental rates um, is going to dictate the type of answer, if an answer is filed and the type of answer, right? Um, it just goes back to what, what can you afford uh, if you're not paying. Um, we've had ones where, you know, it's a, a car dealership or something like that, where they do file a response, but it's a, a smaller car dealership where they file their own response um, only to be told, hey, you need to get an attorney, right? You got a problem. Whereas we've had others, you know, when we're dealing with much larger rental amounts, right, where they have the ability to hire an attorney. Um, but I would say majority of the time, you're going to get answers much more often than you would, yes, um, than in the residential space. Well, and some of these, as you're aware, some of these commercial properties, the tenant build out could run into the millions and, mm -hmm. um, and you know, they're, they're unlikely to just walk away after right. they've put that kind of build out in. Um, you know, then I was right. thinking, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that came to mind too is like, you know, you have, especially these defaults that are not for the failure to pay rent. You know, you have like a commercial tenant, uh, you know, a million dollar build out, you know, AKA a sticky tenant, you know, they're, un they're unlikely to leave because of all the money they've invested into that unit. And mm -hmm. they get in a cross relationship for a variety of reasons with their landlord that puts them into, I'll just call it like a technical default because they are paying their rent, but they're in default something within their lease you know maybe it's uh uh the way they're parking uh their signage uh they painted the building a color they're not supposed to paint it uh they blocked another tenant from some access they're supposed to you know all these kind of like little infighting things and um with a tenant that you know is going to want to have their day in court i in my opinion because i do see it some from like the leasing and brokerage and then it trickles into the investment sales side you know i feel like a lot a lot of work needs to be done in the beginning at the leasing stage and the underwriting of the tenant and the exhibits and the explanations and the rules of the, of like the strip center or facility to try to, to try to avoid some of these things. Because, you know, a lot of times as an attorney, I'm sure you get the phone call when it's, there are, lim there are limited options that now remain. A lot of it, just, it was just kind of skipped or skirted or gone too quickly early on in like the formation of the deal. Agreed. And it's, you know, in the same way, that purchase and sale agreements, right? That you need to have all those things written down. Um, it wasn't until terribly, there, there's still some circumstances where it's required, but for a, for a long time, leases were required to be witnessed, right? Um, by the landlord, not by the tenant, by the landlord to subscribing witnesses. Why? Because you're conveying a leasehold interest, right? In the same way in a deed where you're conveying, you know, whatever your, whatever interest you're conveying, right? The most being fee simple, it requires, right, the grantor to sign that deed with two subscribing witnesses. So that was something that was the case for a while um, with, with the leases as well. Um, and it's important, um, it's important to consider that and, and that it's, it's no longer required, but it, it, you are giving a, a leasehold interest to this tenant. I mean, and it's and it's important to consider that it's and a, a whole interest. <laughs> and it's pretty recent, isn't it, Megan, that you don't have the witness requirement in commercial leasing? Is isn't that in the past few years? Am I wrong? It is. Yeah, it's within about the past five years. Um, and it also used to be used when people would say as a way of getting a landlord getting out of a lease or 
a tenant getting out of a lease because it wasn't witnessed and all those things. And it's like, for 10 years, you've been in this property for 10 years, you've been accepting the rent and you've been paying the rent. And for all intensive purposes, everybody's been operating under this lease with the understanding it was valid and enforceable. Um, so in that scenario, when people try to get out, we have a writing, but we're going to try to invalidate the writing. It's like, that's that's not always quite going to work. So going back to your original question, it needs to be teed up just right in the beginning in that lease agreement, right? How many times, you know, have we, you know, where you've gotten a purchase and sale agreement, people say, can you review this for me? And it's already executed, <laughs> right? It does that you go, I'm happy to review it. There's just maybe not going to be too much that I can do about it um, at this stage. Um, but, you know, I always say, you know, contracts are not for when things are going right. Things are for when things go wrong. Um, so particularly in landlord tenant, you don't even really need to look at it. Do you? You're getting, you're not getting complaints from anybody, your rent's coming in every month and you're like, yeah, everything's going, going swimmingly. It's not until you got to pull it out of the drawer and you say, man, I really wish I, we would have flushed that out a little bit more or, you know, and I think that's maybe where you start to see the val some value of attorneys, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe didn't understand why you paid them so much to draft that lease. Um, but then or you paid so little, and then when it actually comes down to the enforcement, that's where you can start to see, okay, okay, I, I get why that clause was there. And I and had, I think I had two or three commercial leasing transactions this year in 2023. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's funny because I hadn't done, I hadn't done many in maybe a, a couple year period. And mm -hmm. it was, it was in that period where, you know, like docu signing or electronic execution of commercial leases had clearly become the norm. Now I must confess, the deal making side of me loves it. We go through the mm -hmm. LOI, populate a lease. You know, most people, unless it's like a large, you know, Publix or an anchor or some, mm -hmm. most of like your mom and pop commercial tenants, they they almost prefer a short form lease. And um, and then it was DocuSign, you know. And I was like, wow, this is this is humming along like a quick little residential transaction. But it did make me think, like, you know, this is not getting like the slow down page by page read set of eyes that, you know, it probably used to five years ago. Um, and I'm sure some of that will, you know, will, will pop up and bite some people. Not that it's a problem to docu-sign the leases, but we all know, you know, you get a docu-sign, you probably pull out your iPhone. Hopefully you've already read it. It's not mm -hmm. the time. It's not the time to right. be doing like, like click, an in-depth review. Click, click. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So um, one thing I, I meant to ask it earlier. So Generally, I know what makes the evictions run long would be the tenant answer, right? Sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, so like within reason, court calendar and holidays and stuff. But for the most part, it, what does the tenant have to say, if anything? So commercially, well, let me compare the two. Residentially, is it fair to say roughly 30 days? Is that kind of a fair estimate, like uh, start to stop eviction timeline? Yes. From the initial filing down to the final judgment, um, our goal is to do that in under 30 days. Okay. Um, so that, that should do it. If they have to, you know, go to the sheriff's office and get the writ, then the sheriff might tack, they'll probably tack on another 10 to 10 days, but yes. And just to finish the conclusion. So commercially, and I, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure it's kind of the wild west sometimes, but where do you mm -hmm. see, where do you see a lot of commercial evictions fall? Are, are some as fast as 30 days or is it just, is that a hoop dream? Some can be as fast as 30 days. Um, and the reason being is, in typical litigation, right, if anybody, I always say, if you've ever been part of litigation or you've ever seen a movie, right, you get the traditional, you've been served and somebody's got to hunt you down and they got the processor for us to hand you the documents and then you have 20 days to file a response, depending on what the response, right, you could spend six, seven, eight months on just 
fighting back and forth with getting the case started. Um, of course, our legislature has identified that that is not going to serve our property owners well. Um, and so they've come up with what's called summary procedure. And there's only a few causes of action that are entitled to summary procedure, residential and commercial, both get this. Meaning um, the big two differences is one, you don't have to track down this tenant, right? And try to get them personally served. I mean, you can attest, I'm sure that we've all spent, you know, six months trying to get somebody personally served, trying to find them. And again, that is just not conducive and that's not going to work for a non-paying tenant. Um, so what the what summary procedure allows us to do is to have the tenant served by posting to the premises, right? A lot of times there's also in the lease where they want the notices going as well. So those, those two can be posted wherever the case may be. And instead of having 20 calendar days to file a response, they have five business days to file a response. And it's not just any older response, right? They have two things that they need to do is you either need, and we're operating under, we're moving for non-payment of rent, right? They have to either file an answer, right? Admitting, denying, you know, responding to our complaint in some way and depositing all the rent that we claim to be due plus any rent that accrues during the pendency of the litigation, right? So we might get within the first 30 days, a commercial tenant files a response. Okay, we don't have any money in the court registry and the response is, I need additional time. I don't think this is fair. You know, any sorts of defenses that don't really have a legal basis aren't really valid defenses. That's going to allow us to just move right along, right? And that's still going to put us around that 30-day 30, 30 calendar, 30-day timeline. If it's a little bit longer, I think it's just by function of being in circuit court, depending on the amount at, at issue. So I think that's really more the difference is whether you're in county court or whether you're in circuit court. And that eviction can happen in both. It just depends on the amount in dispute, right? So if you're looking to recover the actual rent, if you're over 50,000, you're in circuit. If you're under 50,000, you're in county. But I do think by and large, um, in both residential and commercial arenas, if it goes uncontested or even an answer that does not have valid legal defenses, you're still in that 30, 30 to 45 day window to get down yeah. to final judgment. And maybe I got lucky or I had, you know, a crack legal team over there mm -hmm. at Edwards and Edwards. I think that's what it was. But with my 14 give or take evictions, mm -hmm. um, we had, I want to say three like handwritten answers filed and um, mm -hmm. knock on wood. I guess I don't need to knock. It's already over, but they all, um, they all went, the, all the judges proceeded to, to grant that that final judgment. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it all depends on what's the response and, and it, exactly. you have that, that copy, of, a copy of the lease in there with the eviction. So, all right. Um, I was curious too, like, you know what, I wasn't sure if I did this correctly, but again, it's in the past. I think I'm clear for now, you know, with the, the, I, we have the sheriff come out, you get the writ of possession, you know, you you've won as a landlord, you're going mm -hmm. back you, or, you know, your property manager or yourself go out, meet the sheriff at the property to transfer legal possession. The first time I, I didn't have a locksmith out there. So it wasn't, wasn't mm -hmm. the greatest idea because the tenant can still have keys. The sheriff's standing there. Nobody's there. You, you're not doing yourself any favors. The next time we change the locks. Um, mm -hmm. And then what about, you know, there was sometimes there'd be property in there and, and I had a manager that had been managing for years and he's like, Oh, we just take, we, we take this stuff to the curb. And, you know, is that the way it's supposed to be done? Is this, um, you know, is it supposed to be segregated or held? And then I'm sure commercially, if you take over space and there's, 
all this like FF and E, or, I mean, there could be theoretically, there could be like a, you know, like we, like we said, a million dollar build out in there. Mm -hmm. Is that all to the benefit of the landlord at the end of a successful commercial eviction? It is. It is. Um, and there's a few ways that you can deal with the property, right? And commercial has uh, a little extra remedy, not a little, but a, an extra remedy um, regarding personal property and recovering any rent or money that's owed to you that's not available in commercial. Um, and that's the distress writ. Um, and I'll, I'll, I can chat with about that in just a second. But what it looks like for the personal property that's left in there or the equipment, that would be correct. That if, if after entering a writ, after the writ of possession is executed, if there is any personal property located, it can be removed to the curb. So you're safe. You did the right thing. That is perfectly fine because you've, yes. you've hit, um, you've hit writ. Okay. If you have not hit writ, right, you haven't executed the writ and you get possession of the property and you go in and you see all this property in there. The default rule is if any of the property looks to be, and this is in more the residential, if, if it looks to be valued under $500, you can get rid of it. If it looks to be over $500 and you don't have this particular clause in your lease, then you're required to file a very cumbersome a personal property statute that requires you as a landlord to store all the personal property, pay for the storage, give a notice for a public auction, go to the public auction, right? So talk about add insult to injury uh, when you just had to evict your tenant, go through all this, pay all this money, and now I got to deal with all your stuff and store it and auction it and give you notice of all these things. Um, which is, again, going back, would be nice if you're involved in the lease preparation in the beginning to ensure that a clause like that it basically waves away the tenant's right to protections under that abandoned property statute, right? So that allows you, and if abandonment happens, if they just disappear, you're allowed to go in there and remove everything. Um, now dealing with the commercial, um, the landlord actually has a lien against all of the property, the personal property, the moment it is put onto that commercial property. So you bring in, um, auto body shop right you bring in a hydrolog hydrolog a lift. hydraulic lift hydraulic thank you it's a monday <laughs> hydraulic lift and you bring that in there the landlord immediately has a lien right in terms of priority is concerned so when we're moving forward if we have to get to the point where we have to file eviction right in commercial we're filing for right we want possession we want the money that we're out and, but what if they don't have any money? Do you have a bunch of equipment that's in there? Um, we've had people where they've had $2 million, $3 million, $4 million that they're just liquidating and they're selling it, but they got around it because the attorney that was suing them did not sue for a distress writ, meaning they were able to just sell off all their stuff, keep the money. Had the distress writ been there, it would have prevented them from selling. And any money, if it was sold, any money would have been clawed back when it had to go back to the landlord. Wow. So there's, yeah, to, it, so it's some really big protections um, that the landlord could have in a, in a commercial space. Um, but otherwise, with personal property, you want to get a writ you, or you want to have some sort of release in your agreement. Hmm. I had not heard of that. So it's almost like they treat it like a like a fraudulent transfer. I mean, it's like you're you're you're, yeah. you're stripping all the assets out while you're while yep. you're going under. OK, mm -hmm. wow. Um, yep. You know, 
I really appreciate you taking a little time to talk about these commercial evictions. I think it's one of those areas that gets people's blood pressure boiling, you know, mm-hmm. a, as an investor and a lot of, a lot of my entrepreneurial, you know, colleagues, we all get excited about getting the property ready, the marketing material, getting the LOI, getting this great tenant. And it's, it's almost a premature celebration because, you know, a lot of people aren't underwriting the downside. They're just looking at the upside. And I, I've even noticed this across like, smaller properties like uh i've got a a higher end airbnb by the ocean and what i've noticed too down there is people people underestimate the value of in my opinion calling the last land assuming they had a previous landlord you don't always have this benefit but commercial or residential these are very common sense but i want to repeat them call the last landlord and take a really big deposit. <laughs> the, those two things. I mean, you can. I, that's fine. Yeah. Check. You can check credit and felonies and previous and, and uh, crimes of dishonesty and evictions. I'm not saying don't do that. But for me, the two things that have really moved the needle, knock on wood, to keep me out of the out of the flames. I call the last landlord or a couple if I have them, and I take a, a, a deposit that's going to sting. What's the exact number? It's hard to say, but I, I just make mm-hmm. sure it's a number that people are not going to want to walk away on. And more importantly, I make sure it's a good enough number to call your firm and, and get them out and cover the tab. So, um, you know, don't put people in there on skimpy deposits. Don't be lazy and not call the previous landlords. I mean, these are things that can really save your bacon in the future. I completely agree. And I've had, you know, time and time again, where I've had people come in and we're Right. Anytime I'm I'm filing eviction, I'm typically, you know, I'm doing looking into the background of the tenant, right? See if we can figure out some information. And on multiple, multiple occasions, it's right, we got multiple judgments, we got multiple evictions. And I go, did somebody do the background? Who did it? They're like, No, no, I didn't do it. Right. So it all goes back to like you said in the beginning, right? Make sure your lease is good. So this is the same thing. Make sure that you're you're duly underwriting your tenants, right? Because it goes down to the price point, right? You typically are getting the higher the price point, the higher the security deposit, they're less likely to walk away. And it also gives you better protection as a landlord. I, I think that even with a lot of um, purchase and sale agreements, right? The the It's just industry. It's a, it's a little better in um, commercial spaces. Um, but what, you know, earnest money deposits look like, right? You know, it's, they're so low, you know, when they say, oh, it's a thousand dollar deposit in a residential or it's, you know, 40,000 or 50,000 this. And I said, well, if they cancel and walk, you know, or they breach, what's this going to cost you? And if that deposit's not enough, then you maybe want to consider that are raising it. So I think that's a great idea. What you do is you're just, you're raising the bar and you're, you're getting just those really qualified tenants. Cause that's really what it is. I appreciate the credit and all of that, but if they're cash in hand, for me to cover myself as as the property owner if, if this goes south. I'm not going to say too much about this, but Jacksonville, anyone listening, please get some more meaningful escrow deposits, whether it's leasing oh. or purchase and sale. The, Jacksonville is like home of, I kid you not, I saw so many yeah. contracts when I was, when you know, we I did title and escrow in what feels like a former life. I saw so many contracts come through with a $500 binder. I- I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I just don't even know. Yeah. And I just, I don't know where that came from. I don't know. It, it's almost just treated as, oh, well, we just need it to make this contract enforceable. And that's not even the case, right? The, it's there 
to make sure that somebody has skin in the game. How many people will walk away from a thousand dollar deposit? But th because they're like, I found a different house I like, right? right? Or I found a different property I like. I, you know, I'd walk away from a thousand, you know, if I thought I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get sued for it. Um, but yeah, I just because it's you know when they cancel the day before closing, oh well, great, you get the security or the earnest money, but what does it do for you? That doesn't even pay for the moving company or the right the utility to you know all those things and so i agree with that psa it's just let's you gotta gotta do a little more than that you can do it jacksonville all right well mm -hmm. speaking of jacksonville you know this is the jacksonville commercial real estate show we have mm -hmm. we have rebranded i'm excited and our our guests and our content everything is centered in good old duval and mm -hmm. so i got some closing questions for you meg and they're they're very mm -hmm. jacksonville centric and uh the, the first one is why do you love Jacksonville? Oh, so many reasons. Um, so Jacksonville also, um, from just a personal point of view, um, it's where I went to law school. It's where I met and married my husband. It's where I opened my practice. Um, it's where I bought my first home, right? So it's lots of things that are um, near and dear to me. So from a personal point of view, that's why I love it. Um, from a more of an objective point of view, I just think it has so much to offer. I think it's so unique. Um, I think we're here at a unique time um, with it really growing. Um, I think there's so many people coming here, um, particularly in the past few years, because Florida is awesome. Um, and I always say, you know, I'm originally from New York and I say, you know, there's five boroughs in New York. I almost say there's boroughs here, right? You know, there's the beach borough, there's the Riverside borough, downtown borough. And it's each is almost totally different. There's so much to do. Um, and I just think Jacksonville is just ripe for for more. For yeah. more. And I'm I'm anxious to see it. What is your borough, Meg? I live in the Jack in Jacksonville Beach. So right. my borough is the beach borough, but I am I will jump the puddle. I am um, <laughs> not somebody that doesn't like to cross the ditch. I love to go across the ditch. You're across the ditch right now. Yes. I could tell by yes. your backstop. I am. Yes. Yes. All right. I'm in the Riverside yeah. borough currently. Yep. So yes. Lots amazing. Of, Riverside's yeah. fantastic. Well, it's no secret. The word will get out. I'm actually going to return to the beaches borough here in the next, mm -hmm. uh, next year. So we'll, we'll talk offline about that one. All right. Um, your favorite local Jacksonville restaurant. Marker 32. I've never been. <laughs> it is so good. And it's right on the Marine. It's right on the Marina by marker 32 mm -hmm. and um it's smaller it's owned by some of you know the uh restaurant groups the local restaurant groups for famous name you know palm valley smoke all those fish camps that we're, we all know and love and it's great drink great it's nice but not too stuffy and the view's really great um it's one of our favorites absolutely all right i got a couple i got a couple more local ones mm -hmm. for you so a local business that you think people should know more about? I want it to be um, investor related. It doesn't have to be, you know, this is like the personal touch section of the episode. So. Okay. Um, there is, the name of it is Soul Waves Vinyl Records. And it just opened up um, in Jack's Beach. It's just a tiny little place. And, but I went the other day because I'm getting into... I like records and I'm really moving in that direction. So you I were so cool. 
and just spent like an hour in there. I got this great Beatles, like this original Beatles vinyl, some Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole Christmas stuff. Um, and there were some other people in there. It's just open on the weekends, but um, some really great stuff in there. And the owner, she's she's awesome. She's excited yeah. for it. See, I love this section of the show because it just gives me a long list of things, you know, I have like ongoing FOMO. So I just have to go out and see all these things that yeah. the guests, that the guests <laughs> tell me about. <laughs> Agreed. 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 Um, okay. The the last one on the, on the local list here, a, a local, mm -hmm. a hidden gym, uh, like a venue, a park, an experience, a trail, a location, but a, a Megan Edwards hidden gym in Jacksonville that we should know about. Um, Of course, there's Hannah Park, right? Love Hannah. We, we love Hannah Park. Um. We've even like gone and like borrowed a RV, my parents' RV, to see if we could RV, if we could be RV people. Um, but before we went out, you know, on the open road, I said maybe we should see if we could survive a night and see, you know, what are the, what are the things we're missing. So we did that at um, Hannah Park, and it was so cool. Um, that was a lot of fun. The other thing I think people don't see that um, is great is the Jacksonville water taxis on the St. Johns River. Oh yeah. They take it like, yes, there's transportation just like across for Jags games, but they have um, like sunset cruises, they have wine happy hours, dolphin tours, and it's it's really easy to just jump on. And then you're sitting there and you're like, this is my city. This is so beautiful. These so, are these are great recommendations. I'm glad I'm glad we did these questions. I'm, I'm loving yeah. these questions more and more, actually. Um, all right. So I got some things to check out. I've done Hannah, but I haven't done like like a wine tour on the Jack's water taxi. That sounds cool. It's really cool. Awesome. Really cool. All yeah. right. Megan Edwards, where can people connect with you and find out more about you? Uh, you can go to our website. Um, it's edwards, edwardslaw.com. Nice and long. You're going to type Edwards twice so you don't forget. Um, so you can go there. We're on Facebook um, and then also um, on Instagram, but, um, our website's really right. We have live attendants that are on there all the time. If you have any questions to get you, get you set up. So you can contact us by phone, email, text, any of that at our website. I mean, you're a law firm. You probably, we can probably fax you if we want. Oh gosh. <laughs> we do have a fax machine. Um, it was funny. I had to get something for a client from the, uh, get their EIN cause they couldn't find their EIN. So I had to call and I, the authorization, this and that. And I said, okay, can you send it over? And they're like, well, you have to be, are you within close proximity to a fax machine? Because I can't send it <laughs> if you're not. And I said, sir, nobody's been within a close proximity of a fax machine since like 1984. <laughs> so <laughs> um, we need you to just email it to us. He's like, okay. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I like those mortgage payoffs, right? They just still, for some reason, yeah, let a fax it's like, things. Here, let me give you a phone number that's really an e an email that's going to come right. to me in the form of an email. But right. whatever. Right. I want to I want to make sure this mortgage payoff is good and grainy, and I can barely read this ink block right. with the payoff. And then amount. I can send it to you, and then realize, oh, it had a wire cut off of some bizarre time, and I needed to add this fee on top of it if I was going to send it to that account. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Megan, it has been a blast. Thank you for your time. Yeah. I know everyone's enjoyed this one. So please rate, like, follow, share this episode with a friend that you think could benefit from it. I know all you people listening with uh, potential eviction problems could benefit from this one. Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, those usually come out of nowhere. So just, just keep this episode handy, save it, and be ready for when the time comes. Um, mm -hmm. 
As I mentioned, to stay up to date with us, you can go to investwiththecoach.com, answer a couple questions and join the investor list. If you're into socials, we're Yield Coach on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, all those. The only thing we're not on is Twitter. Of course, since I said Twitter, that's all you're going to remember now. But that's a wrap on this show, the Jacksonville Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm your host, Ian Brown, signing off and reminding everyone to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach, out.